0: But my favorite reading books, old school, and my favorite interviews are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. There's a fire hose of new books about the final days of Donald Trump. I, for one, can't get enough of all of them. The one that seems to be getting the most attention is by Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker from the Washington Post. It's called I Alone Can Fix It. And both of them join me now. It's it's nice to see you both. It's nice to have you both here on the program.
1: Thanks for having
0: us, Michael. Here. So, Carol, you tweeted earlier today. In fact, I, I have the, the tweet in my hand that it says, Good Uh-oh. morning. It's going to be another marathon day for our bestseller book on Trump's 2020. Hashtag I alone can fix it. Here is your day in progress. 10 a.m. Brian Lair, 11 o'clock Smirkanish. One o'clock, Fox 5, D.C., then the readout. Then tonight you're at the Sixth and I Synagogue. By the way, I've been there as a speaker. It's a fabulous place. Nicole Wallace is going to lead that conversation. And then at 10 o'clock tonight, it's AC 360. The two of you have written one of those books that is widely reviewed and, and also is the subject of the treatment where, People will write, here are the tidbits, like here are the five takeaways from I Alone Can Fix It. And my question to the two of you, what is everybody missing? In other words, Phil, what is it that this book contains that in your conversations with Carol or maybe Alone in Your Thoughts, you've said, well, I knew they'd focus on X, but I'm surprised they haven't written much about Y.
2: You know, Michael, I'm glad you asked that question because we've we've been thinking about this ourselves the last couple of days. Uh, we're thrilled, by the way, that the the explosive news breaks in our book um, have have you know reached millions of people around the country. The the reporting we have about General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, fearing a coup. Some of the reporting we have about COVID. But I think the really powerful uh, impact of this book, I Alone Can Fix It, is just that every page has something new. There's new dialogue, new scene, new discoveries about President Trump. And as you read it, it becomes sort of a compulsive, uh, immersive experience where you're reliving this catastrophic, historic uh, final year of his presidency and learning something new at every turn.
0: Carol, anything in your mind that you're you're surprised people are not yet focused on?
1: I have been surprised by um, how little attention has been paid to the way in which Trump essentially has ridiculed and dismissed as weak and ineffectual and useless some of his most ardent insider supporters. Those people became increasingly um, panicked about how this president was behaving in the final months of his presidency, worried about a coup, worried about a Waco, worried he was going to Um, force people to get vaccinated with something that hadn't been properly tested. The way President Trump has derided those folks who have served him so loyally is pretty striking.
0: Is anybody above that fray? Is there anyone who entered the White House with him and is still left standing? I don't mean family. I, I don't mean, you know, Ivanka, but anyone in that inner circle?
2: You know, there are a few uh, very loyal aides who remain close to the president. I'd say first and foremost, Dan Scavino, uh, his former golf caddy who became his social media manager and by the end of the administration was the deputy chief of staff in the White House for communications. But so many other loyalists have fallen by the wayside, including, by the way, Mike Pence, the vice president, uh, who had been steadfast, uh, almost to the point of being a sycophant uh, for Trump up until January 6th, when he decided to do his constitutional duty and certify the election results. And and that relationship was breached. You know, other familiar names, Hope Hicks, the longtime communications and and press confidant uh, of the former president. uh, She she fell out of favor with him over the election uh, fraud claims, which were not true. Uh, So many people were cast away by the president.
0: That pane of glass is the largest in the world, Take me in the room at Mar-a-Lago when the two of you are interviewing him for this book. I'm I'm continually surprised that he's so hospitable to journalists who are writing books about the administration. And I wonder, does he think he can turn you? I mean, doesn't he know it's probably not going to end well?
1: It's hard to know what he is thinking exactly, um, again, because he can commit so well to an alternate reality. Even in our conversation, there were so many moments when Phil and I were sitting there and he would say, well, I won Arizona. You know what I won Arizona. Everyone knows I won Arizona. Well, there's no evidence for that. But he seems very much to believe it. Um, you know, one thing I think he, he craves is an audience. We all know that. He lives on the news cycle lives and dies on the news cycle i mean many people would argue who were close to him that he essentially sabotaged his presidency by focusing so much on the day-to-day winning winning the day whatever the tv headline was he wanted to beat it and he wasn't thinking long term but um i feel that he was pretty charming and pretty uh winning when he met with us Um, and again he was so committed to that alternate vision in which everyone had failed him in which he alone had, had somehow brought a vaccine to America, that he had handled the pandemic perfectly. Again, in his worldview, that he had been um, a, a champion for American public health when many of his doctor advisors believe that he is responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans.
0: Phil, in the book, it's Election Day, it's November 3rd, 2020, and the president makes a visit to the campaign headquarters, and Bill Stepien tells him, quote, it's going to be good early. To me, an acknowledgement of what so many of us were forecasting, this idea of a red mirage and then a blue wave, did the president appreciate that more Democrats proportionately were going to vote by absentee ballot and therefore, logically... It was going to take a while to count those votes, or was he seeking to manipulate that process all along?
2: You know, that's a great question. And of course, we can't get inside the head uh, of Donald Trump, but he didn't fully appreciate how the results would come forward. In fact, he saw on television, which is how he watched the returns come in uh, on election night. He saw that he had these large leagues from from same day voting in places like Florida, which, of course, he ultimately won, but also in states like Pennsylvania, um, Wisconsin, places where he ultimately lost. And he didn't really understand That all of these mail-in votes would be coming in at a later point, would be counted late in the process, and that they would lean very heavily in favor of the Democrats. Uh, Bill Steppi and his campaign manager and other advisors tried to walk him through this, but Trump could only look at those numbers showing him winning. And when ultimately he started to lose those states, that's when he erupted in fury at the advisors around him, F this, F that. They're stealing the election. I won in a landslide and they're taking it away. And it became a very dramatic evening for him to the point where at 2 a.m. we all saw him walk into the East Room of the White House and claim, frankly, we won the election when, in fact, he had not.
0: I asked the question, Carol, because of what Phil just reported, but also, you know, you paint the picture later that night. It's 1120, I guess, when Arizona is called uh, by Fox, interestingly, And the president, you know, thereafter, after he fumes in the way that Phil just described, the president is saying, quote, why are they still counting votes? They're stealing from us, which on the surface suggests that he really didn't understand the nature of the red mirage and the blue wave.
1: I think you're asking exactly the right question. But there are so many factual pieces that cut against this idea that he didn't understand it. I mean, it's possible that in the moment he was just so freaking angry, right? Uh, But, uh, you know, there is an interesting moment and revelation in our book, which is the night before the election, when Attorney General Bill Barr is made aware by a confidant in the White House that Donald Trump is already talking the day before about how he's gonna call the election for himself that night a plot in the works, surely, um, at least a plan. And he, Barr warns Esper, the Secretary of Defense, which, you know, it's, remember, think about how bizarre that is. Why is the Attorney General alerting the Secretary of Defense, hey, just want you to know, FYI, the President's gonna call the election for himself. Um, th- there's a lot going on that cuts against the idea that he was clueless about the fact that what his advisors had repeatedly warned him, it's going to take a while to get all of this counted.
0: Well, I mean, look, Phil reminds us, and the book tells the whole story of him coming out at 2 a.m., but as the two of you report, Rudy wanted him to come out much earlier, and he didn't. I mean, is that to Trump's credit? Because if I carry through with the idea that he knew all along the nature of the counting of the votes and so forth, and he was going to try and capitalize on it, then why didn't he go out at 1120 or before 1120 and proclaim victory?
2: You know, it's a great point, and And you're right to say that that's what Rudy Giuliani wanted Trump to do. Uh, Rudy said he should just come out and, and claim victory and not only claim victory overall, but claim victory in states where there was no victory. Uh, yet the results were inconclusive, but clearly Trump was not going to win them. He said he said to Mark Meadows and other, uh, other Trump advisors, what's our status in Pennsylvania? Trump was not going to win Pennsylvania. But Rudy said, just go out and say we won anyways. Same thing with Michigan and these other states. And and that's really, I think, where the big lie was born Uh, that night. These conversations with Rudy Giuliani uh, and with others is when Trump became determined to just go ahead and claim uh, we won the election. And you saw that rhetoric build and build and build in the weeks that followed to the point where General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, started to see parallels between Trump's rhetoric claiming election fraud that didn't exist and Adolf Hitler's rhetoric uh, in early 1930s Germany that led to the rise in power of the Nazi regime.
0: In I Alone Can Fix It, you give me as close as anyone has been able to provide the public thus far a tick-tock of what went on the afternoon of January the 6th. I can't say that I'm surprised by any of the the reporting because you have him doing what I thought he would be doing which is watching TV, quote, at the White House. Trump was back in his private dining room watching everything unfold on television. Aides, including Dan Scavino and Kaylee McEnany, popped in and out. The president was riveted. His supporters had heeded his call to march on the Capitol with pride and boldness for Trump. There was no more beautiful sight than thousands of energetic people waving Trump flags, wearing red MAGA caps and fighting to keep him in power. He thought this is cool. He was happy, recalled one aide who was with Trump that afternoon. And then when it turned violent, he thought, oh, crap. Here's the question for Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig. If the January 6th commission, whatever they're calling it, subpoenas witnesses and takes testimony beyond Donald Trump. Who do you think could most unlock for the public exactly the picture that you present? I'm not asking for your source or sources, but who was there? Who knows the answer to the way in which he was reacting in real time to those events?
1: You know, Michael, I want to stress before we get into that question or rather before we answer it, You know, we this answer is in no way to be interpreted as our sources. So please, listeners, know that, you know, Phil and I know many people that were there um, and we've talked to many of the people that were there. But to emphasize, these words do not mean anything about our sources. Important people to hear from are the ones who spoke directly to Donald Trump. People like Mark Meadows, Ivanka Trump, um, Keith Kellogg who was in, in conversations with the vice president's team when he was being evacuated from his hideaway in the Senate as rioters charged up the steps and he was being taken down back steps to a subterranean parking lot for his own you know for his own safety. He, he was being threatened with being hung and being executed. Um, people like Dan Scavino would be another folks who were talking to him in real time. Now, Phil and I heard quite frequently that there was almost like two teams. There were people who were egging the president on in his excitement. And remember, forgive me, a pause there. Remember that when the president is happily watching TV, the scenes on the screen are of people breaking the law. They are trespassing on a federal property at the Capitol Hill and they are carrying weapons. They are scaling the inauguration platforms that are set up for for President Biden, future President Biden. So just remember what he's happy about is something that's already a crime. And then there is another camp which is trying desperately to get the president to call off the dogs. And that includes Meadows and Ivanka. They are working to try to get him repeatedly to send an email, send a text, and then to create a video. He sends a text that is actually excoriating Vice President Pence at the same time he's being evacuated, and they don't think that's too helpful. Um, and they are working for hours to get him to take a good take of calling off, off this violence. Earlier
0: earlier in the book, you reference that he had, I guess, that morning, the morning of January 6th, he'd spoken to Pence and, and he'd given Pence instruction Although I'm not exactly sure what is the instruction, what is it, Phil, that he wanted Mike Pence to do that day?
2: You know, Michael, he wanted Mike Pence, in overseeing the joint session of Congress on January 6th, to to, to turn the election results back to a handful of states. So results from Arizona, from Pennsylvania, and from a couple of other states, he wanted Pence to effectively... Uh, rule uh, along with Republican members of Congress that uh, they were inconclusive because of objections from some Republicans back in those states and then to send uh, the results back instead of certifying them on the floor of the Congress to send them back to the state legislatures where they would then be reviewed again. Trump had a hope, of course, that his Republican allies in those state legislatures would be able to, uh, through some shenanigans uh, in those individual states, uh, change the results in a way that would send different slate of electors back to Washington for certification down the road. So he was effectively trying to get the vice president to buy some time uh, by not certifying those results and kicking it back to those stakes.
0: A final and, question, And by the I'm, way,
2: we we all know yeah. this, but but that is not constitutional. Uh, so Pence reviewed this, whether it was an option for him, along with lawyers and experts and determined that that would not be permissible according to the Constitution.
0: A final question. I'm not giving it all away for free. The book is called I Alone Can Fix It, and it's terrific. Uh, Carol, General Milley comes out of the book, I think, looking very much with his reputation intact, notwithstanding the role that he played in the, the march across Lafayette Square. If he were so concerned about a coup from Election Day forward, where was he on January the 6th? Was there more that he could have done To ward off those events or to better protect the Capitol?
1: On January 6th, Millie had been for now at that point, probably eight to 10 days, monitoring everything he could to figure out whether or not there was going to be a problem on that day. He was, you know, all sensors up for problems, for plots, for violence, you know, the Boogaloo boys, the Oath Keepers, his warning to the troops that day in a gymnasium as they planned for the inauguration, those were things he was worried about before January 6th. And he was literally monitoring social media platforms to see, you know, who was planning to come on the 6th. And he was alerting, um, you know, members of Congress that he was very close to that there were threats against, for example, uh, Mitch McConnell's life, that there were talk there was talk on social media about smuggling guns into Washington on that day and heading to the Capitol. So he had all all his antenna firing and up and ready. Um, On that day, as you know, and as our readers know, um, and Phil and I got a little deeper into this in the book, there was a huge kerfuffle because the Capitol police chief knew he had a riot at one o'clock that day. His perimeter had been breached, and by 210, he knew he didn't just have a riot, he had a colossal disaster with thousands of people banging their way and making their way into the Capitol that they thought was impenetrable. He sought emergency help from the National Guard, which he'd been blocked from getting from his bosses at the Capitol. Uh, in the days before. And while he was on the call with the Army Secretary's office, they told him, the Lieutenant generals told him, we're not so sure this looks so good for us to send the National Guard. The people on that conference call were flummoxed. How is it possible? We have rioters entering the building, breaking glass, going through the doors with flagpoles, with bear spray breaking into our capital where hundreds of lawmakers are scurrying for their lives and the national guard wouldn't look good coming Mm -hmm. to the rescue um millie is on some of those calls we are told in our reporting and phil and i learned that he was very concerned in the days before that the military would be deployed by somebody else for a worse purpose and he was sad that reality got in the way that basically there's no way you can get the National Guard there in, in an hour's time or 20 minutes time, that getting them in, there in three hours is actually lightning speed. He was working to do that. And it was also on a conference call where he said we should send all federal forces, all federal law enforcement immediately to the Capitol as quickly as possible and urged the Secretary of Defense and the Army Secretary to call the acting attorney general to get that done.
0: Thank you both so much for writing the book and for your willingness to come to the program and talk about it. I wish you all good things with I Alone Can Fix It.
1: Thanks, Michael. Michael.
0: Thanks, Carol. Thank you, Phil. Nice to see you both. You too. Good stuff. Hear more of Michael Smirkanish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live
1: weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app.
0: Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirkanish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell
2: by Discount Tire. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last.